You would turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to take a break uh, this next week for the Christmas season, uh, but we'll still try to weave in some Christmas uh, concepts in here this morning to be able to connect, if you will, the, uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to the birth of Christ and then culminating in the return of Christ. Uh, all of this goes hand in hand. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, it's much brighter in here, is it not? I can actually see you now. This is good. Can't hide anymore, so no more falling asleep. So, <laughs> All right, let's hear the word of God. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink for them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have chains of gold wrapped around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writings or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can, interp you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing of the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. 
Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over, sits over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, which they do not see or know, but the God in whom, in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a, proclaim, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God, for the record of these wondrous events, these mysteries from heaven. We give you praise, Lord, that you have continued to reveal yourself to a people who have rebelled against you, who have rejected your word, who have sought to kill your prophets and ultimately would kill your son, yet you still reveal your word to your people. You still give us all that we need to know, that we might know you, love you, and serve you in the proper manner, that we might know that there is a comfort that can be given to us from heaven, that there is a forgiveness that can give, be given to us through your Son, that there is a peace that passes all understanding. Lord, give us more of that wisdom from on high today as we read your word. Lord, help us to grapple with the truths that are spoken by the prophet Daniel. Help us to see the, uh, the immediacy of the judgment of God upon all the world. Lord, help us to be ready for the day of your coming, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might be familiar with the uh, ancient Syrac the, the king of Syracuse. His name was Hero, H-I-E-R-O. Sometimes you could pronounce it Hiero. Most people pronounce it Hero in the English language at least. But he had, he had entrusted a craftsman to make him a crown made of gold. And so he gave to the craftsman quite a bit of his gold in order to make this uh, new crown for him. And even though the, the crown was finished and it looked wonder, wonderful, looked beautiful, uh, and weighed the, the right amount, he still wondered whether or not the man had cheated him in some way or another and had substituted some other material and then just put some gold on the outside, if, if you will. But the king didn't know how he could test the matter without actually destroying the crown. And so he looked to his good friend Archimedes who also happened to be a, a very famous mathematician and inventor, and gave him some time to figure it out. Well, after a number of days uh, leading into weeks, 
This man had spent his entire time devoting himself to trying to figure out how you could determine the contents of this crown. That weary and worn from this labor, he finally goes and takes a bath. And he fills up the bathtub and absent-minded, it fills it all the way to the top. And eventually, he gets into the bathtub and the water just starts pouring out all over the floors. And all of a sudden, it dawns upon him. He could figure out the volume of the crown by placing it in the water. And if he knows the weight and the volume of the crown, he can determine the contents that are in it. And so he says at the top of his lungs while he's still in the bathtub, Eureka! Which means, I have found it in the Greek language. And the rest of the story goes that he immediately got out of the bathtub and ran to the palace to tell the king the answer without putting on his clothes. So the story goes. Afterwards, Archimedes does do the test and finds out that, in fact, the craftsman had indeed cheated the king and had substituted much silver for the, the gold of the crown, and that man was put to death. Well, in our text this morning, not a, a crown is being weighed and found wanting, if you will, but rather the king himself. The king, as well as his kingdom, is being evaluated by the Lord of the universe. We find that this is the sudden end of King Belshazzar, as well as the glory of the Babylonian kingdom. But you ask, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Why all of a sudden are we on this new guy, Belshazzar? Well, after wandering the fields like a beast for seven years, the Lord restores his sanity. We found that last week. Restores his kingdom. And he, the last words that we hear out of the mouth of, of Nebuchadnezzar is words of praise to the God who has humbled him and raised him back up, who has done all these wonderful things for him. But then going the way of all the earth. His name fades from the scene. He dies in the year 562 B.C. after having sat on the throne for 43 years. And now the scriptures move on. But it doesn't tell us the information what happens between him and this King Belshazzar. Uh, as you know, the Bible is not written to be a record merely of historical events, but rather to, as a revelation of God. And so Daniel immediately goes on to this next thing. But I know some of you are curious. So I figured I'd fill in some of the details to help you know what has happened in this period of time. Uh, well, basically, Nebuchadnezzar had a son whose name was Evil Merodach. Uh, it's the, at least that's the name we attributed to him in English because he wasn't a very good king. Evil Merodach, and he reigned for only two years before being assassinated by his brother-in-law. Interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar's name means, may my god Nebo preserve my heir. Didn't preserve him, though. Perhaps Nebo was eating dinner when Nebuchadnezzar's son was assassinated in his own banqueting hall, eating dinner himself. Well, the brother-in-law only served as king for four years before being assassinated by his own son. Not a good start. The son then reigned for all of one month, and he too was assassinated and replaced by one of his conspirators, whose name was Nabonidus. And Nabonidus is technically the last king of Babylon. He reigns from the years 555 B.C. to 539. Now, as I mentioned to you in the introduction to our book a number of weeks ago now, um, the secular historians have slung a little bit of mud at the Bible based upon this uh, seemingly discrepancy between who is the last king of Babylon. As you know, uh, Nabonidus is technically considered to be the last king, but here in the book of Daniel, it appears as if Belshazzar is the one who's actually sitting on the throne on the night that uh, Babylon is destroyed. Well, I had, I had briefly mentioned to you that 
Historically, archaeologically, back in the year 1854, an archaeologist found what are called the Nabonidus cylinders. And there were four of them. They were exact replicas of each other. And on those cylinders, um, basically that were found at the bottom of a ziggurat, which is sort of like a temple, at the bottom of that temple in the city of Ur, which, if you remember, is the hometown and birthplace of Abraham, uh, this is where they found these cylinders. And on, that, on those cylinders, basically, we have Nibonidus explaining some of his great works, also telling us about his son, who also has done many great works. And can you figure out what the name of his son might be? It's Belshazzar. So we know that Belshazzar is indeed the son of Nabonidus. Uh, but for the longest time, a secular historian said there was no such man. He was made up by Daniel, blah, blah, blah. And so now it's been confirmed that there was a man, and in fact, this man was sitting at least temporarily on the throne as a co-regent with Nabonidus because of a number of things that Nabonidus had done. First thing Nabonidus does is he, am I boring you already? Nabonidus is basically uh, trying to promote a god over Marduk. Now, Marduk is the hometown god of everybody. They love him, and for some reason, instead, this king wants to promote another god, which is aptly named Sin, S-I-N. Uh, they hate him for it, and so they run him out of town. For the longest time, he's living in the west uh, in the area of Edom. Eventually, he comes back, but for the time being, his eldest son is sitting on the throne in his stead. When he finally comes back, the country is torn by war. Many invaders are coming at different places, and so Nabonidus keeps going out and fighting more battles. And so you still have Belshazzar sitting on the throne. So that's why we have Belshazzar in this text, as if he is the king instead of Nabonidus. In fact, we find out that just prior to this event that's described for us here in this passage, Nabonidus was captured by Cyrus the Great and has been imprisoned, which is why Belshazzar is sitting on the throne. Make sense? For all those who have spent a lot of time with secular historians, now you can answer them and tell them what's really happened. But Daniel seems to acknowledge this to be the case, though. So Daniel's not saying, hey, Belshazzar is the guy here. In fact, there are three verses that actually are quite important to this passage. Verse 7, verse 16, and verse 29. In all three of those verses, we find that Belshazzar is promising the person who can successfully interpret the meaning of the words on the wall that he will make them the third in the kingdom of Babylon. Now, what does he mean by that? Why third? Well, if you compare this with what we find in the book of Genesis, chapter 40, 41, when the Pharaoh offers a reward to Joseph for being able to interpret his dream, he's offered to be second in the kingdom. Well, why is, why is uh, this guy, Belshazzar, offering third? Because he himself is the second. He's not the first. He still sees Nabonidus as being the true king, and yet he's sitting on the throne in his place. So it all makes sense. Apparently, though, because Nabonidus was imprisoned, it's possible that he's even dead by this point, but we don't know for sure. The, the, the historians don't, can't tell us the answer to that. Uh, but anyway, long story short, after Cyrus the Great has captured his father, um, he's now about a day's journey away from the place where he captured his father at the Battle of Opus, and now he's just come to the gates of Babylon. Literally, Cyrus the the great, is standing outside of the palace, outside of the walls of the city at this very moment that these events are taking place. 
So that should give you some idea of what kind of man Belshazzar is. Instead of uh, meeting with his war ministers, instead of rallying his troops, he's drinking with a thousand nobles so they can all see him drink and feel good about it, if you will. Uh, in fact, uh, maybe it's his way of trying to comfort them, saying, well, we're okay, guys. This is an impregnable city. They're never going to get through. We're waiting for reinforcements to come. You're good. Just, just, just drink it away. No big deal. Uh, in fact, uh, the ancient historian uh, Xenophon is, is recounting for us the fall of Babylon. He explains that the walls of the city were, were thicker and stronger than any city that had ever been built. It was a double wall where the way he describes it, a king, or not a king, uh, a horse and a chariot can do a complete 360 on top of the wall of the city to show you how wide this wall is. In addition to that, they had enough food stuffs or stores to basically last for a year within the city confines. So they thought, well, we can, we can maintain a siege for however long. In addition to that, there's also basically the Euphrates River runs right underneath the city walls, in through the city and then out the other side. And so again, you can't stop us from drinking water. We're good. What they didn't take into account was the fact that maybe Cyrus the Great could reroute the river into a basin so where literally his troops are able to go underneath the city walls in thigh high water and take them out immediately. So forget the wall and how thick it was. He just went underneath the wall. So not quite as smart as he thought he was, Belshazzar. But at that particular moment, he's sitting at his royal table. He's drinking himself silly and thinking, we're good. No big deal. We're, we're safe. And in the midst of all the buzz, the revelry, he comes up with this bright idea. Let's, let's do some more drinking. And uh, this time, let's bring in the vessels from the temple of God in Israel. And let's do some toast. And he begins to... Uh, make some toast to Marduk, to Nebo, to Sin, and to all the other gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And it seems he's really enjoying himself. All the crowd is cheering him on as he continues to go round after round in this way. Then suddenly, a hush falls upon the crowd. And this hand appears hovering in the air right in front of the wall. It says, across from the lampstand in the great hall, Verse 5 says, the fingers of a human hand appeared in the air and began to write on the plaster. Now, it's interesting, across from the lampstand in these great halls of the Babylonian kings is where they generally would uh, put on display all of their achievements. So if you can imagine, this is his uh, trophy room, if you will. And in the midst of all of this uh, glory given to Nabonidus and to his son, now we see a hand is sort of writing graffiti on top of it basically saying this is absolutely worthless. Of course, the king is not completely drunk at this point because he's sober enough to be scared silly by this ominous sign that appears. And uh, the way it reads in the ESV, it says, he lost all color in his face, his limbs gave way, and his knees began to knock together. But in Aramaic, literally, if you translate it into English, it would read, the knots of his joints were loosened. What does that mean? It's a weird expression. Was well, a euphemistic way of saying he lost all control of his bodily functions, particularly his bodily fluids. You could say it this way, he was scared so much he wet his pants. That's ultimately what the scripture's saying here. But have no fear because Belshazzar has his wise men. He's going to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the magicians, the astrologers who are going to come in and explain this extraordinary event 
for him. Presumably the hovering hand now has disappeared, the writing still remains, and now these men of Babylon who are trained in all sorts of wisdom can come in and comfort him with the meaning of the words. You know I'm just kidding, right? These guys are complete losers. Every single time in the book of Daniel, they come in, they parade themselves around, they act like they know something, and then in the end they say, there's no way any of us could know this and plead for mercy, and then the king in disgust throws them out. You can see why Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill them, really. They're completely worthless in every possible way, but yet for some reason the kings continued to keep them on their payroll. Makes no sense whatsoever. Still, I guess it makes them feel better that they have some more wise men there. But thankfully, there's another person who actually has some wisdom compared to these wise men. The queen, uh, says in, in this text, or really the queen's mother, because it's not his wife. His wife's already there in the room with them drinking along with his concubines and all the nobles. But the queen mother comes in when she hears her son screaming like a little girl and says to him, O king, live forever. And you know this is sort of doubly ironic because on the one hand, he's not really the king. And then on the other, his life is going to be snuffed out before the night's even over. So, O king, live forever really doesn't apply to this guy whatsoever. But she's saying it nevertheless. And it's meant to be funny to the Israelites who are reading this, right, to the Jews. But in verses 10 through 12, she says this. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods or God, depending upon your translation. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, again, or God, were found in him and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now already, Belteshazzar has been greatly humbled, right? Um, he's crying at the top of his lungs. He's peed his pants. And now his mom has to come in and rescue him from all of the stuff that's going on. Uh, but on top of that, when she begins to talk to him, she's sort of condescending in how she has to give him a history lesson as if he doesn't really know anything about what's happened prior to him. Um, literally, she's saying to him, remember Nebuchadnezzar, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Do you know who this guy is, basically, in that regard? And in some ways it may be true, because he's probably not necessarily related to this guy at all, but yet there's still this facade as if he's somehow related to the good king who built up the city in the first place. And so as a result, uh, she gives him this lesson and then points out to them, in addition to not knowing about Nebuchadnezzar very much, he really doesn't know Daniel at all, which seems kind of strange that he would never have heard of Daniel. Why does Bel Belshazzar not know who Daniel is? I mean, after all, he was really the second in the kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Well, as you can imagine, a lot changes over time, right? Uh, especially under administrations. If you remember... In the very uh, first chapter of the book of Exodus, it makes this statement that basically says, and the new Pharaoh came to the throne who knew not what? Did not know Joseph. Of course, at that point, Joseph was dead, so you've got to give credit to the Pharaoh there. He didn't know who he was. In this case, Daniel's still alive, and yet the king doesn't know who he is. More than likely, through the various assassinations and changes of administration, we basically have a king who doesn't even know who he is because Daniel has not been elevated in the way he was before. He's been diminished in some capacity or another. So he doesn't know him. And yet the queen mother does. 
Uh, she knows quite a bit about him, apparently, given this testimony of, of what he's capable of doing. And in fact, it almost makes you wonder if the woman's a believer herself. Again, as I mentioned to you, depending on your translation, um, you know, the, the Hebrew word Elohim is often translated as God in our text, right, in the Bible. Elohim can also, it can also be a plural for gods. So you could see in the ESV why it would translate it as gods versus God. So Aramaic has a slightly different word. It's Elohim with the letter N at the end as opposed to M. But it's the same concept. Actually, uh, Aramaic and Hebrew have some very similar cognates, if you will. But in this particular case, it looks as if she's saying she acknowledges that there is a spirit of God or a spirit of gods within him. But it's, it's what she says later on uh, in verse 12 when she mentions that Nebuchadnezzar used to call him Belteshazzar, but she herself calls him Daniel. In fact, she says, and call him in, call Daniel in. She's not referring to Belteshazzar, but rather to Daniel. So it makes me wonder whether or not maybe, perhaps, Queen Mother is also a believer in Caesar's household, if you will. It's quite possible. We don't know. But anyway, at first, when Daniel comes in, this puppet king, this young foolish king, uh, treats God's servant with disdain. Notice here in the text that he doesn't refer to him as one of the highest advisors in Nebuchadnezzar's um, uh, regime, but rather refers to him simply as, oh, you're one of those slaves that he brought over from Israel. Again, this is the God he's just mocked, the God of Israel. And now I say, oh, you're one of these guys. I hear you know all these things, but you know, we'll, we'll see in that regard. But he's mocking him in the same manner, as if, why should we expect anything from you, you lowly Jewish slave? Sort of the, the interpretation. In fact, it reminds me of a story I had read recently, T.E. Lawrence was visiting Thomas Hardy, the famous poet in England. And uh, he was also, uh, uh, what do you call that? Um, he was basically a pilot for the, the Royal Air Force at the time. And so he came to Thomas Hardy's house dressed in his uniform on that particular day. Uh, and basically Hardy had a, a guest at, at their home who was the, the mayoress of Dorchester. And, uh, soon enough, when she figured out that this uh, militia man was uh, going to join them for dinner, she was highly offended by the fact that she was going to spend time with this commoner at their table. And so she turned over to Mrs. Hardy and spoke to her in French, assuming that the soldier would have no idea what she was saying. And she said this, Never in all my born days have I ever had to sit down with a private soldier. And after a couple of moments of awkward silence. Finally, the soldier turns to her and speaking in perfect French, says to her, I beg your pardon, madam, but can I be of any assistance to you as an interpreter? For Mrs. Hardy doesn't speak French at all. <laughs> well, in a very similar way, this king who has disdain for this Jewish God and these Jewish slaves is having to rely upon a Jewish slave to interpret Aramaic to Aramaic speakers. Make any sense at all? Really? Um, Nevertheless, that's the case. God uses Daniel, gives him not only the understanding of the language, but also the understanding of the meaning of what God is saying here in this particular passage. And so as a result, uh, Daniel, before he gives him the, the, the meaning, gives him another history lesson, reminds him of what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar and how God had raised him up after humbling him, etc., etc. And then, then he, he rebukes the king directly for having desecrated the holy vessels that were taken from the temple of God, having known what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and disregarding how God had brought him uh, and humiliated him, not caring whatsoever as if 
he can do what he wants. And so as a result, Daniel pronounces this judgment upon him for desecrating God's holy things. In fact, it reminds me a little bit in 1 Corinthians, if you remember when there's some people in the church who are drinking and eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It says many of them fell asleep, which means they were killed in judgment because they had treated with disdain his holy meal, if you will. This is exactly what's happening. So as a result, Daniel pronounces judgment upon him and upon presumably the rest of the people in the room uh, who were drinking that night. And he, he uh, explains them the words that were written on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, parson, all of which, uh, all of these words can have uh, uh, more than one meaning. So you can see how they might be a little confused as to what it means, and, and certainly there's some elaboration here. But the first word, mene, uh, which is repeated twice here, can mean simply to number something. So it's something's been numbered, right? And then secondly, the word tekel can mean to weigh something, and so... Uh, we can see what that one means. And then finally, the word perez or parson, depending upon uh, plural or singular here, can mean divided. So you put it all together, in English it would read numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. It would make sense that even if, they, even if the wise men understood the words, didn't necessarily understand the meaning, right, in that regard. But Daniel interprets these words to mean simply God has numbered the days of the Babylonian kingdom, that Belshazzar himself has been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and then finally, that the kingdom will be taken away from him and from Babylon and, and be given to the Medes and the Persians. But it's interesting, all of these words can also have a meaning of a unit of measurement in terms of weight or money as well. Uh, we find that the, the mina, uh, spelled M-I-N-A in Hebrew as opposed to M-E-N-E in Aramaic, is a, is a pound of weight. So it's a, it means you know, basically a pound, if you will. And then uh, if you break that down into the tekel, which also in the Hebrew would be the shekel, that's one-sixtieth of amina. So it's got sixty, sixty, basically one, and then the last one, parson, means a half of a shekel. So sixty, sixty, one, and a half. And it's interesting, there's one commentary that's trying to explain, I, I don't know if it's far-fetched, but I thought it was interesting. He's explaining that... The, Technically, the scripture doesn't say that a hand showed up and wrote like with a pen on the wall, nor does it say that it wrote with one finger on the wall, but rather it says fingers wrote on the wall. And you're thinking, how do, how do fingers write? You know, this isn't, uh, what is it, color paints or whatever that you're doing with uh, as a child. But what he, uh, this commentator says is that you can actually represent sort of like in Roman numerals uh, the different numbers by just lines on a wall. Depending upon your spacing, you can write just like this, and then the thumb would be used to cross the last one to show that there's a half. Does that make sense? So anyway, he's saying it's possible that none of them had a clue what it meant because it was just a bunch of lines, and until you measure it properly, that's what it means. But literally, the, the terminology can mean something simple like this. You have two kings that both seem to be so weighty. They're worth 60, if you will. They're, they're a pound of weight. But then in reality, they've been cut down to size because of their sin. They're really only a shekel. And then as a result, even that shekel is being ripped to half and, and given to someone else because of their sin. And as a result, sort of reminds you a little bit sort of like the, the parable of the talents, right? The one who had the one talent is really it's not as worth as much as he thought it was, and even what he had was given to someone else. Uh, so, sort of that's the message, if you will. And as a result, uh, Daniel gives uh, this interpretation, makes sense to the king, and it should sound pretty devastating to the king, you would think. Um, but again, I don't know if he's half drunk here or what, but immediately 
he goes ahead and follows his word. He puts this purple clothing on Daniel, even though Daniel said he didn't want any of this stuff. He puts a big chain of gold around his neck and then proclaims him the third ruler in the kingdom. Of course, as you know, all of these rewards and recognitions are all completely worthless because within an hour, the men are coming in and taking everything. It's all going to be gone, right? In fact, the historian Xenophon again tells us that it was at night during a night festival uh, that the Medes and the Persians broke into the city and that the king himself was slain. So all of this happened, you know, just within minutes after this interpretation was given. So in a sense, you could say Belshazzar was very much similar to the rich man that's described in Luke chapter 12. The man, if you remember, who had so many crops, he didn't know what to do with them. He tore down his barns in order to build bigger ones so they could put more crops in there. And he said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry, right? But what was God's response to that man? He said simply, you fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. That's exactly what God has said to the king. Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, who finally comes to his senses and repents after many uh, humiliations, uh, we see that this King Belshazzar, there's no response of his at all. He just simply, okay, well, here's your, here's your rewards. And then all of a sudden, he's killed and now dwells with those in darkness and the fires of eternal hell. Makes you wonder, you know, what really happened with this guy. Um, in fact, uh, I'd say in the same manner, this is the way the judgment upon the king is given upon Belshazzar. Very similar to the way the judgment is described in the last days. All of a sudden, it's just going to come at a moment when everyone's just drinking and eating and, and full of merriment, and all of a sudden, it just comes. And you don't even have time to think or to, to ponder the meaning of it. The, the, it's just sudden. It's so sudden. And then there's this sudden demise. In fact, it's interesting the way the, way the, the second coming is described, the way the judgment of God is described is as the fall of Babylon. Exactly the way this happened on this particular night. He's saying the whole world will be like the fall of Babylon. The, it'll just happen. Boom. It falls. And then those will be thrown into hell who do not know the Lord. Obviously, this miracle that was performed on that particular night was really not for the benefit of Belshazzar so much as it was for our benefit, who have the Word of God to, to read and to ponder these things. We're reminded of, of Christ's second coming. We're urged to repent of our sins while there's still time to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus while there's still time to acknowledge that we're not the king, that we're not the true king, but rather Christ is the king of the universe, the true Lord of our lives. We're a sham at best, trying to think that we have our act together. Uh, but as Belshazzar hardened his heart's heart, so ours is tempted to be hardened with this message. It's, it's amazing the, the way Peter describes in his epistle the scoffers in the last days who will continue to say, where is this promise that was coming? It's not coming. Everything has happened just as it always has since the beginning of time. Where is it? He's not coming. We're safe. We're good. Nothing's going to happen. Very similar to Belshazzar with these double walls and all this sense of safety that he has, not knowing that the handwriting was already on the wall. Already, each one of us has one foot, if you will, already in, in the grave. The handwriting's already written 
on the wall. We already know that before we ever came to be, both the day of our birth as well as the day of our death were already written down and recorded in God's Word. The question is, are you ready to meet your Maker? The question is, are you ready to face the judgment of God? I think, I think any of us, if we're sober-minded at all, would have to recognize, if I have to face God on my own merits, I should be scared to death, absolutely in every possible way. I mean, even if I think I'm worth 60 versus one or a half, it's still not good enough. And, and, and that's the, the beauty of the gospel, that when we, we find Jesus is on the cross, the last words he says are basically, it is finished, which means what? It's been paid for. You think you can pay for your own way to cover over your sin and to make your way into to paradise. It's never going to happen that way. None of us can stand before God on our own terms. It can only come through our faith in Christ Jesus. As you know, Daniel was spared that night and went on to live for many days. The kingdom of God continues to thrive even though the kingdom of man has been destroyed. Presumably, many of the other wise men were also spared on that particular day. Uh, to live another day, to continue their worthless ministry amongst the Persians and the Medes. Makes you feel so good for them. <laughs> But you also know that the wise men play an important role later on in the New Testament, right? You know that uh, after their pitiful attempts at trying to interpret any meaning in the stars whatsoever, God actually gives them a revelation and shows them a star that's moving across the heaven that they've never seen before, and immediately they begin to follow it. They at least have enough wisdom to do that. But these guys are not as wise as you think they are, just so you know. In fact, uh, I was laughing about it the other day when we were doing the Jesus walk uh, because the, the, the wise men were always walking away from me and I was trying to get them to come back and talk to me because our, we, were always, we were always crowded and I was waiting. We had nothing to do for like a minute. I'm like, come back and talk to us. But they're like, no, we've we got to go. We've got to move on in that sense. And I'm like, you're already late. You already missed the birth of Christ. Literally, the way it, it describes it in Scripture is that Jesus is no longer in the stable. He's now in a house and the way... We understand from Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, Herod's, King Herod's threat, and then finally seeking to kill all the boys who are up to two years of age, he determines that based upon when they saw the star in the east. So somehow it took them almost two years to get there. How many times did they stop for directions? Or did they not stop like typical men, and that's why they showed up so late? And finally they asked for directions from the king, and so they're there. And, and nevertheless, uh, I'm comforted by the fact that God uses these losers, these absolute duds, and saves fools and wicked men and sinners. And indeed, the opportunity of the gospel goes out throughout all the world. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of mercy. God can save a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar. God can save wicked and foolish advisors like these Magi, God can save you. This is the day of salvation. The whole reason why Jesus came for his birth was to give us the glorious news of the gospel, that salvation is not based upon our good works. We're all weighed in the balance and found wanting. The only way we will ever find peace with God is by looking to his son, Jesus. He is the perfect one who has come to grant salvation. 
to his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you knowing that you have already laid out the way of salvation for us in advance. Knowing that that way is perfect, that we don't have to go looking in some other ways, trying some other scheme, trying to find some rare book in the library that might give us more information about these things. Even though I enjoy giving tidbits of history, none of that history will ever save us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to reveal your son, Jesus Christ, to us, that you would continue to hound us like a dog from heaven till we come to our senses and recognize that we are not as great as we think we are, that we are all desperate sinners, hopeless sinners who need Jesus Christ, not just yesterday, but today, as we look to him daily to be our Lord and our God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.